welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. STAT is a national publication focused on finding and telling compelling stories about health, medicine, and scientific discovery. A June 27th STAT article, The Game Changer, 12 Bold Attempts to Slow the Opioid Epidemic, included a segment on the overprescribing practices of some doctors and the culture change that is needed within the medical profession to help fight the opioid epidemic. Here today to talk about leading the culture change through education is Dr. Martin Klapik. Dr. Klapik is an assistant dean of medical education overseeing the third and fourth year curriculum at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. So, doctor, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, let's start off by talking about the training that the typical med student gets about safely prescribing opioids. Well, let me give you a little historical background. I I uh, graduated from medical school back in 1979 and completed my residency training in 1984. And back in those days, uh, and really not until kind of recent, uh, the education on pain management and pain medications was sort of woefully inadequate. Matter of fact, I, I'm sure I received much more training on the use of antibiotics than I did on the management of pain. Um, back then, there just was not a strong foundation of scientific evidence for pain management. And, you know, when that happens, if the only tool in your mailbox, in your toolbox is a, is a hammer, then all your problems start to look like a nail. And back then, opioids were about all we had for severe pain in our uh, toolbox. So in the mid-90s, there was a push to treat pain more aggressively. And in fact, pain uh, became recognized as the fifth vital sign. What was the impact of that? Well, let me read from a, a letter that the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Uh, Murthy, sent last August to uh, over a couple of million U.S. physicians and healthcare providers because he provides some nice uh, additional historical background. So he said it's important to recognize that this place that we've gotten to now uh, was paved with good intentions. And he says, nearly two decades ago, we were encouraged to be more aggressive about, about treating pain, often without enough training and support to do so safely. And this coincided with heavy marketing of opioids to doctors. Many of us were even taught incorrectly that opioids are not addictive when prescribed for legitimate pain. 
Dr. Murthy goes on to say the results have been devastating, and since 1999, op opioid overdose deaths have quadrupled, and opioid prescriptions have increased markedly, almost enough for every adult in America to have a bottle of pills. So that provides you a little context of where we were a couple of decades ago, and and the results have, uh, as he says, been been devastating. Well, it sure does. So in one of the presentations that you provided to me, you had a map, and it seemed to suggest that the uh, states with physicians that overprescribe the most are also the states with the most overdoses. Is that true? There's, a, there's definitely a parallel. Uh, if you look at the graphs of the rate of opioid prescription and the rate of opioid overdose deaths, those two uh, graph lines parallel each other as they rise. So today, even in the midst of the opioid epidemic, some doctors are still overprescribing. I, I don't understand how that's even possible. With all the coverage that this has uh, had over the course of the last two years, can you comment on that, doctor? Uh, certainly. There's good news and bad news. Uh, first, the good news. Uh, some of the states that have been hit hard by the epidemic, like Ohio and Kentucky, have implemented pain clinic regulations uh, and began requiring clinicians to review the state prescription drug monitoring program data on patients as they prescribe medicines for them to make sure the patient isn't taking uh, medicines from other doctors unbeknownst to the prescribing doctor. From 2010 to 2015, per capita opioid prescription uh, decreased 85% in the uh, of 88 Ohio counties and and 62 percent of 114 Kentucky counties. Now this is according to a recently published article in JAMA uh, a couple of weeks ago. Florida has implemented similar policies during this period, and the amount of opioids prescribed decreased 80 percent in 80 percent of the 66 uh, Florida counties, I should say, examined from 2010 to 2015. So the the policies that are being implemented have been shown to reduce both the amount of opioids prescribed and the opioid overdose deaths. Uh, so these types of state innova innovations uh, show that uh, uh, substantial changes are possible. Uh, but now the bad news. Uh, nationally, despite uh, the observed reductions in opioid prescribing, opioid-involved overdose deaths continue to increase. So even with the decrease in the prescription of opioids, the opioid overdose deaths continue to rise. My, my, I would speculate this is this is uh, may well reflect patients switching from prescribed opioid medicines to street purchase of the relatively inexpensive heroin and other drugs. So you and your team have developed a, a new medical school opioid curriculum at the University of Central Florida's College of Medicine uh, that was cited as a game changer. So. Let's talk about that. Well, sure. Uh, it's actually, this issue was on our radar even before the uh, 2016 CDC guidelines came out on, on appropriate use of opioids. Uh, all you had to do really was pick up the newspaper to see the evolution of a public health crisis, both nationally and in Florida. So we had begun to review our curriculum uh, even before that time. And I was pleased to see that we already had a fair amount in our Two uh, first years, our basic science years, we do a, a fair amount of introducing our students to the pharmacology 
of opioids, the pharmacology of non-opioid pain medications, and also the use of non-pharmacologic aids in treating acute and chronic pain. So we, uh, we focus a great deal on that in the first and second years, as well as a focus on introducing students to uh, problems with addictions um, and get them a little bit of experience in interviewing patients. And then it really expands greatly in the third year. So throughout the third year, we have a, a good deal of focus in each of the core uh, clinical clerkships, psychiatry, OBGYN, pediatrics, neurology, internal medicine, family medicine, and surgery. So each of those clerk clerkships will have a little different focus. For, so for example, in OBGYN, the students get experience with pain management on labor and delivery unit. Uh, unfortunately, they also get a, a good deal of experience with social services addressing substance dependency problems among uh, pregnant women. Uh, surgery clerkship, we really try to help the students learn how to uh, treat post-op pain. A uh, recent article was published that uh, suggests that the management of post-operative pain is actually potentially leading to uh, further problems with uh, opioid misuse. Uh, in our country, it's been an unrecognized problem. Um, so it's it's good that research is now focusing on that. Uh, our neurology clerkship, our pediatric clerkship, also have focus. Uh, unfortunately, our students on our pediatric clerkship have recently been seeing and treating increased numbers of babies born with uh, that are dependent on opioids and that are going through neonatal abstinence syndrome. So they have to get experience in how to manage that as well. Uh, and in a particular focus that we've increased in our family medicine clerkship, uh, where Dr. Pastorica is, uh, uses a lot of independent study self-learning uh, modules with the students, but also then has them come into the classroom and apply what they've learned to, to cases of pain management, for example, in acute and chronic pain, as well as uh, patients in the uh, hospice setting. And then all students on family medicine have to be exposed to patients with pain management uh, issues, back pain, joint pain, abdominal pain, et cetera. In psychiatry, we've added a, a considerable focus as well with uh, a great deal of use of independent study modules that the student does on their own, but then they come into the classroom and in a session co-taught by family medicine and psychiatry faculty, we have them work through a case that presents with acute pain they have to come up with a multidisciplinary pain management program, including using risk mitigation strategies if they're going to use opioids. And then they follow this case uh, through a series of videos as it develops into chronic pain. They have to learn how to uh, propose management of the chronic pain now. And then we throw them a little bit of a curveball in that this evolving case, uh, we have uh, the patient develop complications that the student has to address, and this is a, a theoretical case uh, shown on videotape. And the student, we walk them through how to deal with uh, complications such as the development of substance dependence on opioids, how to co-manage uh, both the pain problem and the substance use problem, how to utilize expert consultation, and something that we're particularly um, excited by is we help teach the students how to teach family members and caretakers how to decrease the risk of opioid complications and how to initiate uh, out-of-hospital 
uh, resuscitation if, God forbid, somebody has an opioid overdose. As you know, there's formulations now of naloxone uh, that are available without a prescription in most states across the country. And family members can be taught how to use, it's a simple nasal spray, uh, can be taught how to administer that to actually keep a patient who is overdosed alive until emergency medical services can, can arrive. And this has been a wonderful development. Uh, I'm sure you're well aware of it. But all across the country, yes. uh, first responders are now starting to carry naloxone. Family members, caretakers are starting to have access to naloxone. And there's already evidence that this has saved uh, uh, many lives. So in the medical education setting, we're trying to teach our medical students, again, right at the start of their training, before they become practicing physicians, about how to uh, safely prescribe opioids if they are indeed necessary, how to try to minimize any risk of development of complications, and then how to initiate emergency management if uh, there happens to be uh, an overdose. We're also trying to go beyond just the uh, uh, undergraduates. We're trying to introduce this into our early graduate medical education programs. Uh, we've also started some continuing medical education, uh, both locally and regionally, uh, providing uh, educational meetings for practicing physicians. And we're also trying to do some public medical education through uh, television, newspaper, and uh, radio interviews. So can you compare this in terms of maybe uh, hours that, uh, of curriculum that, that you're provided now on the topic for old school? the way that it, you know, traditional med school was and your curriculum program. Can you contrast and compare the two to give us a sense for your program and, and how different it is? Oh, goodness. If I, if I was to compare this with the training that I got all those years ago, uh, I'd say there's, there's at least 10 times as many hours now as there used to be. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's growing. So we're not, we're not satisfied with where we're at now. We want to continue to grow. We want to continue to develop um, uh, further uh, strengthening of our curriculum. And one thing that I'm very excited about, uh, we're, we're beginning a statewide collaboration in Florida uh, of nine medical schools. We're sort of following the lead of the state of Massachusetts, where four medical schools have already done this. But there's a council of medical school uh, deans here in Florida, and... and uh, They've developed a pain management group with representatives from nine medical schools, and these are representatives from many different disciplines, anesthesiology, hospice, law, pediatrics, family medicine, pain management, psychiatry, addictions. And we've started sharing among the nine med schools here in Florida uh, an online platform of modules. So, for example, uh, I've put together a module or two, other experts with different kinds of expertise that some of the other medical schools have put together modules, and we're sharing these so we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. And, uh, you know, we're kind of coming together collaboratively, and, and hopefully we'll uh, all just continue to, to improve exponentially. Uh, we're at an early stage. We're uh, about to develop uh, uh, shared core competencies in pain management among the nine schools. We're, we're just at the beginning stages of doing that. And following that, we'll further develop the curriculum. And then the next step after that, of course, is assessment, both how well are the students learning the curriculum 
and uh, for example, through objective uh, examinations of the students, making them actually uh, sh demonstrate their skills in a, with a standardized patient. So how about collaboration outside of the state if other med schools wanted to get involved? Well, that, that'll obviously be the next step. Um, the, back in 2016, uh, uh, the White House, uh, uh, the Obama administration at that time, uh, developed a national initiative uh, encouraging medical schools across the country to, quote, take the pledge to uh, agree to train all their graduating medical students uh, in the appropriate use of opioids consistent with the new CDC guidelines. So we, we took that pledge, and um, we were delighted to uh, be able to go there was a uh, meeting back uh, December 7th, uh, 2016, in Washington, uh, uh, hosted by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Resources. And uh, this was at the White House to discuss strategies for collaborating nationally and dealing with the opioid crisis. And as a participating medical school, we, we were there and gave information on what we're doing uh, for our undergraduates, our CME presentations, our, our efforts at public education. It was a real treat to be there. That happened to be the same day the U.S. Senate uh, passed the 21st Century Cures Act, which, as you know, includes $1 billion for uh, state grants to fight the opioid crisis. So nationally, that'll be, uh, that's coming. Uh, uh, right now we're working on the state level, but uh, there's, there's efforts nationally as well. I was just at the uh, Association of Directors of Medical Student Education and Psychiatry a uh, national meeting in New Mexico, and there was a plenary. I, uh, I and some colleagues uh, participated in that plenary, again, disseminating information nationally among uh, representatives from medical schools all across the country. So, so it's, it's, again, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to behold, this, this kind of collaborative effort. So how long did it take to develop your curriculum, and how long now have you been teaching this curriculum? Well, like I say, it was on our radar even before the new CDC guidelines came out in 2016. So we've been at it over uh, over a year, but it, it remains a, a work in progress. Uh, and it's something we're excited about. So, I, you know, the example, you know, last week I was looking at some modules that the uh, University of Florida Jacksonville uh, put in our shared online platform among the nine med schools. And I found some uh, materials there that I thought, wow, that's that's a neat aspect of this that we haven't incorporated yet. I'm going to use that in in the classroom as well. So it's a work in progress. Um, uh, it's it's not done, and then the statewide collaboration, uh, as I say, is in its early stages as well. So it's we've been on it at this over a year, and there's no end point in sight because the the crisis continues. Sure. So any idea when the national collaboration might begin? Well, it's already begun in some ways. Like I say, there was the White House initiative. I think that mm -hmm. uh, maybe has been shelved uh, with the changes in administration. But there were, it was clear to me there were people still in the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Resources where this was uh, something they felt a deep commitment to. Uh, I know uh, just from attending national meetings that this is a a hot, very hot topic item across the country and is being addressed in, in national conferences. I was at a conference uh, a few months ago, the uh, AAMC, uh, American Association of Medical Colleges. So nationally, this is 
uh, being presented in uh, workshops, presentations across the country, um, and it's just going to continue to grow. Do you have any stats on the effectiveness of the program at this point, doctor? Great question. Uh, right now, our students are tested on formal exams uh, for their medical knowledge. They also get formative feedback from faculty on their in-class and in their clinical wards performance and working with specific pain cases. I don't have any formal statistics yet, but we've designed what's called a, an OSCE station. That's a, an objective uh, skill uh, station where we will have the uh, student walk into the room and, and have to deal with a case. Uh, they don't know what the case is before they walk in the room, but we're going to be presenting them with uh, pain management uh, slash overdose cases to see how well they objectively perform. And these, these sessions are videotaped and they're graded on them and, and given feedback on their performance. So that's something we're going to pilot this year. It's something that's already being uh, done up in Massachusetts at the uh, University of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I can talk about that a little bit uh, later. Uh, Dr. Fisher's work in, in objectively assessing how, how well students have learned these skills. The, uh, the last thing I'd say about assessment is that that's on our radar with the Florida nine medical schools after we develop our, our shared core competencies and, and develop our curriculum a little bit more. Assessment will be a key component of that. How well are the students really uh, learning these skills that, that we're teaching them. So it seems to me that you probably have a lot of medical schools throughout our country that are pursuing a enhanced curriculum such as you're putting out. What advice would you give to them? I can tell you what, what we've sort of, lessons that we've learned is that no one discipline owns this issue. Uh, and there's a need for multi-systems, multidisciplinary approach and collaboration. So at the med school level, at the community level, at the state level, at the national level, um, again, uh, our state and community have suffered greatly. And it, it, this can only be addressed through collaboration throughout multiple systems. So again, you know, on the educational level, undergraduate, graduate students, and then practicing physicians, educating the public. Um, and again, it's, it's not just psychiatry, it's not just family medicine, but this pediatrics, emergency medicine, pain management. No one has all the skills necessarily uh, to, to really uh, help conquer this, this crisis. We have to work together and use uh, the skills uh, that our uh, colleagues have in, in other disciplines, pain management, et cetera. Um, the, uh, the nice thing I'm, I'm very proud of, I, I, we certainly can't take credit for it, but there's here in our county, there's an Orange County Heroin Task Force uh, that uh, the mayor has uh, really supported, and we have a we have a representative on that task force uh, from uh, our uh, university. But they've begun some really cool projects. For example, they have a pilot program where uh, incarcerated individuals with opioid addiction have access to addiction treatment, including post-release monthly naltrexone treatment, which is pretty cool. Um, the Orange County Heroin Task Force uh, has been really a leader with multiple community recommendations and in getting first responders to be able to carry uh, naloxone and, and save lives that way. So, so I guess what I'm saying is yeah, you, you really have to work um, uh, collaboratively with other disciplines and in other systems, so not just, not just your own little 
uh, med school, you've got to get out and know what's going on in your community, interact with them, um, and state, statewide and, and, as we were talking about earlier, nationally as well. Any other game changers in the opioid epidemic that you've witnessed, Doctor? Yes, I can mention a couple. One was uh, Dr. Melissa Fisher's work uh, up at the uh, University of uh, Massachusetts Medical School. Um, she's created, you know, as I say, the, the state of Massachusetts, four med schools up there developed some shared core competencies, and she's developed a really nice uh, structured uh, objective assessment of how well medical students are learning what they're teaching them about pain management and appropriate use of opioids. So, uh, so for example, she has like uh, four 30-minute standardized patient encounters uh, and then also has a panel discussion with patients and families in recovery. And uh, so it, it's, it's, uh, that's in the early stages. She has some early uh, preliminary educational outcomes. Uh, the students uh, have given overall very highly favorable ratings uh, to the training. Um, a second person that I w- would like to mention is the, the work uh, by Dr. Phyllis Hendry at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. She's part of this pain assessment and management initiative, which is a, a patient safety and educational program for pediatric and adult pain management. And they've provided some wonderful multidisciplinary educational materials for medical students and practicing doctors, nurses, EMS, pharmacists, etc. These are free access include pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic pain management. So it's just a, a wonderful effort that, that they've made, again, educating, uh, getting, getting the word out, helping people learn about the crisis and how to work towards prevention. So, Doctor, uh, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and what you've learned? Uh, I think one of the most important things I would say is don't forget the patient's family. Um, the patient is front and center as well they should be, but the patient's family is suffering uh, as much or almost as much as the patient, and they need our help too. Uh, they, they need education. They need support. Um, for example, if, even if a loved one doesn't have a problem with addiction but they've got problem with severe chronic pain, that impacts greatly, obviously, on the family. And there's resources out there. For example, the American Chronic Pain Association, um, they provide a, a lot of support and education for in, uh, uh, folks with pain as well as their families. Um, another obvious uh, important resource would be if, uh, if they have a loved one with an addiction problem uh, to opioids. So NAR-ANON, that's N-A-R-A-N-O-N, that's a a worldwide fellowship, a 12-step program uh, that offers families help through sharing their experience and, and hope. And uh, it's free. Uh, it's a, it's, you go online, you can find a, a meeting uh, locally. So again, bottom line, don't forget the family. Well, doctor, I want to thank you for joining us today. Very much my pleasure. Thank you for spreading the word uh, about this crisis and about how we can all work together to, to address it. We've been joined today by Dr. Martin Klapik, who serves as the Assistant Dean of Medical Education, overseeing the third and fourth year curriculum at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. Dr. Klapik and his team have created a robust curriculum to address the persisting problem of education on the opioid epidemic 
and responsible treating utilizing opioids and also alternatives to opioids when treating pain. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.